welcome to episode 1701 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing all right. We just asked each other how our long weekends were, so should we maintain the facade that we are just <laughs> beginning our conversation on this podcast and say, how was your long weekend? And then have that exchange again. Sure, let's do it. Ben, how was your long weekend? <laughs> it was quite restful. Thank you. How was yours? It was the same. Thank you oh. so much for asking. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Well, we will talk about some of the baseball that happened over the long weekend, a little bit of news, a little bit of feedback from previous discussions, maybe a few emails that were left over from last time. I wanted to start by asking you about this little tidbit that I found in a game story that was pointed out by Craig Calcaterra, and this is about the Brewers and Tigers game on Monday, which ended in a walk-off win for the Brewers. They won 3-2 to in 10 innings. And so here's how the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel game story starts. How certain was Luis Arias that he was going to win the game Monday? Certain enough that he told teammate Willie Adamas before he went ahead and did it. Before the inning, when we were going to the dugout, he said, I'm going to walk it off. I said, I know you got it, Adamas recounted not long after Arias' single dropped to cap a 3-2 10-inning Memorial Day victory over the Detroit Tigers at American Family Field. It was amazing to watch it. It was even more because he told me that he was going to do it. He had that confidence in himself that he was going to do it. And my reaction to this was that you can't really brag about a walk-off if you're in extra innings and there's a zombie runner and the game is tied (laughs) and all you have to do is score the zombie runner. And Arias was, I think, the second hitter up that inning. So you have Omar Narvaez at second pace as the zombie runner. Keston Hura comes up and he bunts Narvaez over to third base. So now you're in a a third base one out situation. Arias doesn't even have to get a hit or anything. I mean, he did. He singled, but all he really had to do was put the ball in play and sack fly, whatever, get Narvaez in from third. So it seems to me that the zombie runner has really removed the ability to brag about a walk-off or to guarantee a walk-off and have that be an impressive feat. Because really, the expectation is that there's going to be a walk-off in that inning. Like, that's the default. That's the baseline. If you enter the bottom of the inning and it's a walk-off situation and the game is tied, like, in extra innings this year, according to the Fangraph Splits leaderboard, There have been 238 runs scored in 194 and two-thirds innings pitch. So there's more than a run per inning or per half inning being scored in extra innings this season. So, yeah, that's kind of the the basic. That's not like, wow, he's so confident. He knew he was going to do it and he delivered. That's Manfred Ball. That's the way it works. I'm so glad to have found something you feel so strongly about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not mad at Aria so I know much. You're not. I'm, I'm more mad at Manfred, but I am a little bit flummoxed about trotting this out as an example, I guess, of Luis Arias's supreme confidence and ability to deliver. So I appreciate what you're saying, Ben. I want you to know <laughs> that I I am validating your experience of this quote. Right, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I might offer, I might offer, just, you know, if yes. I were going to offer, I'd, I'd maybe offer, that Urias is hitting 221, 320, mm-hmm. 79 on the year. He's striking out almost 26% of the time. So basically, what, league average? <laughs> yeah, right. that might be true. <laughs> Fair enough. But what I'm saying is, 
and and you know as you said the various ways that he could participate in a walk off you know there are a couple of options here right he has a couple of ways that he could get the results that he ended up getting and we might credit him for actually recording a hit rather than a sack fly but yeah he could have done any number of things but he is not guaranteed to do those things under more normal game conditions right Mm -hmm. at other points in the year and when you're hitting uh with a, a 93 wrc plus perhaps any amount of confidence in in a moment like that despite the you know various avenues you could have to help your team win would be thought of as confident it could be seen as confident because you're just not guaranteed i mean he's he's far from the worst hitter in baseball but he's mm-hmm. far from the best and so that's what i'd maybe say about that but again i see your point i i think <laughs> that your point is valid but i doubt very much that that he thought of it that way i bet he was oh, yeah, thinking he definitely didn't i bet he was thinking you know i'm not always getting into one this year it's not a sure thing but i just have a good feeling and so i will uh, you know, like maybe that's the thing. Although I also will say that, and again, this is this is in 104 batted ball events, so take it with the grain of salt that is required. But he also, in support of your point, has, say, the, the highest barrel percentage of his career uh, mm-hmm. so far, and he's recorded the highest max exit velocity of his career, and, and, you know, his average is sort of right in line with where you'd expect, but like the highest hard hit percentage of his career. And so in that respect, you might say, well, yeah, you're doing this more often than you ever have before. But then, but then, Ben, maybe that's why he's confident. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. No, he's having a career year so far, so he, he should be feeling good about himself. But I guess really I'm just looking for more ammunition to complain oh, about yeah. Manfred Ball and, and the zombie runner. And I found it here. And to be fair... The Tigers faced the same situation in the top of the 10th, and they did not deliver. So they had Jake Rogers as the zombie runner. Then Willie Castro came up and bunted him over. Isn't this great? Isn't the the extra innings that we are stuck with now wonderful? We get sack bunts again, just what we needed. And then Robbie Grossman struck out, and then Harold Castro struck out. So they did not plate that runner, and the Brewers did. But, you know, I'm just saying it's not quite like guaranteeing a championship or something or you're you're down in the series and you say I'm going to put the team on my back we're going to come back and win this thing it's not Joe Namath or Mark Messier it's I'm going to score that runner who's on second base with no outs (laughs) like yeah you know you probably should and I wonder whether this story would have been recounted I was just about to say yeah if the (laughs) A, if he hadn't delivered, of course, you know, then it never comes to light. Of course, you only hear about the guarantees when they pay off for the most part. But also, would this have come out if he had had the walk-off but hadn't done it on a hit? If he had just, uh, you know, what if he had reached on an error and then the winning run scores still a walk-off? Or what if it was just a sack fly or something? Would would Adamus had said, yeah, he knew he was going to do it. He was going to get that run in. Or do we only hear about it because it was a clean single? Anyway, I'm just uh, pointing this out because it it sort of stood out. You know, it doesn't quite mean what it once would have to deliver the walk-off. So on top of everything else, the zombie runner has slightly devalued the walk-off. It's still nice to win. I didn't actually watch the video, but I'm sure he got mobbed just as he would have if this had been any other situation. But, you know, it doesn't quite have the, the same impressive ring to it to me. 
What percentage of situations like this do you think feature a player confidently asserting to one of his teammates that I'm going to do it that we never hear about? Like, is it every time? If you told me it was every time and we're only (laughs) hearing about it, you know, the times when it actually comes to fruition, I would believe you. Like, and I I wouldn't find them to be, you know, haughty or self-aggrandizing. Like, I, I think that as we have discussed many times on this podcast, the fact that anyone ever gets a hit at all is is a miracle and the fact that anyone ever gets struck out is a miracle too and i i maintain that position even in an offensive environment like this one because team you know players are just so good now they're just so very good and so i would think that you would have to have an absurd amount of confidence perhaps even at times bordering on hubris to not just cry when you get in the batter's box because it seems so hard so i wouldn't be surprised if it's every single time and i would say uh whatever you have to do to get through Manfred Ball is what you should do. That's what I have to say about that. Yeah, there's probably a lot of instances where a player jokingly calls right. it, and then if he actually does the thing that he called, then it gets treated as a serious prediction. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to walk it off here, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, or I'm, I'm going to homer here or whatever. But then if you actually do it, it's, you know, yeah, he said he was going to do it, and he did. Yeah. Anyway, congrats to the Brewers and to Luis Arias on that well-earned win. <laughs> so just to follow up a little bit on our Will Craig discussion from last week before we leave poor Will alone and uh, stop dredging up this play. But A, he talked to the press about this, which he hadn't done when we spoke and he didn't do immediately. I think he did the next day. And I didn't care if he had never talked to the press about it because what was he going to say? I think we all kind of knew and he did say pretty predictable things about it. But, you know, he had good humor about it. And he said, I replayed that probably a hundred plus times in my head, exactly what happened. Of course, I'm going to end up on a blooper reel for the rest of my life, probably. (laughs) I just keep moving forward with it. And I think the best way to do it is kind of just accept it head on. Don't deny it. Don't shy away from it. It happened. I messed up. I came off the bag and caught the ball, turned to look and saw him bolt toward home. And I just kind of lost my mind for a second. It just kind of all went downhill from there. As soon as I released the ball, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I know better than that. It's simple baseball 101. But I guess in my mind, when I saw him running back, I just kind of lost my mind for a second. And, you know, we talked last week about how this was more of a Will Craig low light than a Cubs or Javi Baez or Wilson Contreras highlight. But Mm -hmm. maybe we should give them a little more credit than that just because they did precipitate the play. I mean, it still required Craig to, as he said, lose his mind for a second. But that happened because the runners were running the way that they were, right? So Baez, who has this reputation for kind of deking fielders into doing things that they shouldn't and he has i think reached on the second most errors over the past few years baseball reference pointed out which is probably more of a product of the fact that he's a pretty speedy right-handed hitter who hits the ball on the ground yeah he fits the profile of someone who reaches on error a lot but maybe it has something to do with just how aggressive he is and kind of forcing fielders to make mistakes and that was the case here where Yeah, like he turned around and he started running back toward home. And I'd have to think that, I don't know, 990 times out of a thousand or something, the first baseman gets the out anyway. But you don't typically expect the runner to turn around on his way to first and return to home plate. And that did confuse Craig for a second. So it it did require Baez 
to actually take that non-traditional step of uh, of retreating on the way to first base, which, you know, maybe we can give him some credit for that. And Contreras for just continuing to run and, and bust it around third and kind of confuse Craig into doing this. So, you know, I, I want to give them a little more credit for the running than I did in our initial discussion, I think. And Craig said, you know, he turned to look and saw him bolt toward home and kind of lost his mind for a second. So in that case, I I guess he's talking about Baez, not Contreras, who was also bolting toward home, but from the other direction. But again, like if we were going to to break down the win probability added or debited here, I don't know exactly how you would do it. I think you would still give the bulk of it to Craig and uh, and not to Baez, but Baez deserves some. (sighs) Okay, so I don't want to... I <laughs> I don't want to refute Will Craig's own understanding of his life because to do so would be silly because he is recounting his understanding of this moment as it unfolded. He is not trying to shirk responsibility for it, which might make mm-hmm. us think that he is an unreliable narrator, right? He is he is admitting that he made a mental error and it had a bad outcome and is, you know, uh, that that's fine. He gets to say that, but I'm going to, I'm going to, push back ever so slightly on this, which is to say, I still, I still think that Will Craig's weird behavior to start this is what, is what sort of cast off the chain of events, because he, (laughs) he moves toward Javi before Javi turns around. That's true. So I, so, so, so I think that it's fine for us to, to say that Baez was sort of heads up in this moment, right? He did a thing that I would imagine, I haven't seen what Javi has said after this moment, so I don't know if he's addressed this in the media. My apologies if he has. I would suspect that he did not think that this was going to work, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I doubt strongly that Baez was like, oh, we're going to score a run here. I, I'm sure that he was cognizant of the fact that the most likely outcome in this scenario, even given it branching off into the strange timeline where Will Craig just doesn't put his foot on the bag, is is him being tagged out uh, in the baseline and there being no run scored on us all looking at Will Craig and being like, you okay, buddy? And then him sheepishly <laughs> later saying, I lost my mind for a moment. But in that scenario, he has still recorded the app. But I don't know. People are are really excited about Javier Baez, which I think is great. And I think he is a very exciting player to watch. And he is certainly a master of the tag. This would never happen if it were Javier Baez in the other position, right? He'd never oh. he'd never make this mistake. It just wouldn't happen because he's a master of the tag. So even if he goofed and didn't put his foot on the back, he would have he would have just tagged him because he's mm-hmm. he's famous for that. And <laughs> I don't think that he's like a conjurer (laughs) 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 so anyway i just uh i think that you're right that we can give maybe a little a a scooch more credit than we did and also i think that will craig's initial move is what caused javi to turn around when Mm -hmm. he saw will craig proceeding down the base path toward him then he was like, oh, I'm I'm going to run back this way. Let's see what happens. And then Will Craig's brain went, and then we got what we got. Again, I, I don't mean to call either Javier Baez as a special player who does fun stuff or Will Craig as like a guy who's just honestly recounting having a bad day at work into, into doubt. And... Like, I'm just, I'm looking at him walking down the base path and Javi being like, oh, I'm going to turn around. 
because mm-hmm. I ha- I pulled the play out. I don't know. People get people are really intense about this play. People are really intense about it, Ben. <laughs> yeah, they're really. There's a lot of feeling behind this play. I don't know, man. It's a lot. <laughs> we got one more email about this that I wanted <laughs> to read. This is uh, <laughs> sent to us by Dan from Milwaukee, who points out. Will Craig made a mental mistake, but so did every other Pirates fielder. Oh, yes. Which is uh, an important point. You know, Will Craig is the face of this play, unfortunately for him. But there is plenty of blame to go around. So Dan writes, with regard to the Will Craig hijinks or the El Mago magic, I think it is only fair to point out that Will Craig was only one of nine Pirates fielders who could have prevented this fiasco. We could also probably lump in coaches and managers and other people who were in the dugout and could have yelled something. Oh, yeah. He writes, Perez could have yelled, please turn around, Will, and run back to first. I do not want the ball from you. (laughs) Anyone else on the team could have offered similar encouragement as well. Craig would have had plenty of time to hear the cries and think, hmm, I am not making a smart baseball play right now. But if I simply stay between Baez and first base as I retreat back down the baseline, I should have no problem completing the force out and preventing a run from scoring. I think this would also be a good way to prevent further humiliation on this play and avoid being the laughing stock of baseball for the next few days. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back to first base. I must remember to thank my teammates later for this helpful suggestion. Presumably, no one offered this helpful suggestion to Craig. Second, perhaps more egregiously, I believe that every pirate in the field, excluding Craig and Perez, could have converged at first base and yelled, hey, Will or Michael, throw us the ball and we will step (laughs) on first base for the force out. From watching the video, it is easy to establish that Javier Baez's time from home to first was approximately 15 seconds. This seems like it must be at least close to a record on a safe trip to first, which is true. Baez's sprint speed to first base on this play was six feet per second. (laughs) I know this is an average velocity, not a sprint speed, but let's just go with that number because it's funny. For reference, that equates to a 1440 mile, essentially a comfortably brisk walking pace. Craig effectively abandoned first base about five seconds into the play. That would leave at least 10 seconds for any or every other fielder to think, hey, someone needs to be at first base for the force out and to run and cover first. According to Baseball Savant, the MLB average sprint speed on competitive plays is about 27 feet per second. But let's use a slower pace of 23 feet per second to make up for the longer than 90-foot sprint that would be necessary for, say, left fielder Ben Gamble or center fielder Brian Reynolds to reach first ahead of Bias. Any pirate with a little hustle should have started moving toward the infield shortly after the crack of the bat, either to back up the fielding play or the throw to first, or to go back to the dugout assuming the out would be recorded, or to assist in the developing pickle fiasco. Assuming a light jog toward the infield during the first five seconds of the play, I think even Gamble and Reynolds would have been within 230 feet of first base and could have made it there in time to force out Baez at something less than an all-out sprint. I have attached a totally precise Microsoft Paint graphic of PNC Park (laughs) with a 230-foot radius circle centered on first base for visual reference. I will, of course, link to that helpful graphic. Hopefully, Will Craig can use this in his defense in the upcoming kangaroo court proceedings. In any case, my favorite part of this play is when Baez watches Contreras score, signals him safe, pauses in the ready position, and then the switch flips in his head, and he realizes that he still needs to somehow get to first base safely. It would have been incredibly anticlimactic if, after all that action, Adam Frazier or Gregory Polanco or Tyler Anderson had been calmly waiting at first base to take the throw from Paris. I don't know whether this would have been more or less funny if it had ended that way. Probably less. I don't know that it could be more funny or alternately embarrassing than it was. But thank you, Dan. I also think that, look, I'm going to say a thing and I don't mean to 
in any way uh, impugn pirates fans. I'm going to impugn them, but not for their attendance, right? The, mm-hmm. One might think that given the record of the pirates and sort of the understood trajectory they have as an organization this year, not in the future necessarily, but this year, that there might be a lot of Cubs fans at this game uh, in Pittsburgh uh, and perhaps fewer Pirates fans than on average because uh, they're like Cubs fans buying up those seats. Could be true. Mm -hmm. But there weren't no Pirates fans. So my question is also related to this email. How did they not collectively yell throw to first (laughs) from the stands as if to say, you know, fans always want to be helpers. That's why we stand behind home plate and do like funny dances and go blah Mm -hmm. because we're trying to throw off the opposing hitter and it's why we yell at umpires that and like unresolved anger stuff and uh, we we think we're being good helpers and most of the time we're not because baseball requires a tremendous amount of focus and more often than not uh, an individual voice isn't really that distinguishable from the, the sort of buzz of the ballpark but collectively I think they could have come together as one would for the wave and yelled throw to first and then perhaps he would have gone oh mm-hmm. and, and he would have and, and then this wouldn't have happened yeah. So like the one time we need you guys, right? The one right. time the fans have the power to impact the play on the field and they're and well, I mean, I'm sure that they were actually just so flummoxed by the whole thing that they forgot yeah. to yell cuz they had been watching baseball and then they briefly watched something else happen. <laughs> right. I'm more inclined to forgive fans given that they are not professional fielders. <laughs> but and for all I know, there were people who were yelling at Craig and he just didn't hear it or didn't pay attention because he had tunnel vision or tunnel hearing and he was just so mesmerized by Baez and Contreras that it just uh, he, he didn't process the instructions in time. But it is funny also that Craig won a minor league gold glove in 2019. So he's like not a bad fielder. He's like more in there for his defense maybe than for anything else. Just not on this particular play. But again, I think this is probably the last time that we will pick on Will Craig here. And if anything, we're, we're attempting to not Salvage. defend him. But uh, <laughs> Well, but... you are. I'm saying that, that don't engage in ambiguous first moves in the base paths because then people are going to try to pull a on you right no, we we don't really hold this against will craig who among us has not made a bad error at work it's definitely <laughs> happened i sometimes tag the wrong prospect and stuff mm-hmm. thankfully that doesn't really get noticed but by five people and then i get to fix it it's a less public mistake but it's still an error so yep. you know will we yeah. sympathize man like we've yeah. all well not been exactly where you are but like in a in a broader <laughs> sense we have been and um and i admire the way he handled this which was not to be defensive or Mm -hmm. or snarky again i agree with you if he had just like hung out in the clubhouse and not talked about it that would have been fine too because i don't know that there's a lot that is edifying to be had here but also (laughs) he didn't and uh and he, he took responsibility and now we can all move on Yeah, and we talked about how he didn't actually receive an error on this play, even though it it was an egregious one. And we got an email about that, too, from Ian, who said... Ben was talking the other day about needing a stat to more accurately describe the Javi Baez-Will Craig play, and the answer is so obvious, the boner. Named after Merkel's boner, of course, the boner can be defined as a momentary lapse in judgment that negatively impacted the player's team's chances to win. 
They could be determined and scored by the official scorer and could even be graded and assigned to multiple players and even teams. The boner is both an offensive and defensive statistic and could be used across sports, as it just as equally applies to Will Craig and an NBA player who passes the inbound pass to the wrong team. I'm thinking that boners could be rated in a one to four scale, a category four boner being Will Craig running after Javi Baez, whereas a category one would be more along the runner forgetting to tag up from third on a deep fly ball. I guess that would be like a a toot plan could be a, a category one to three boner maybe. For instance, the Javi Baez play could be scored as Javi Baez grounds into fielder's choice, 5-3. Javi Baez safe at first due to boners by Will Craig, category four, and Michael <laughs> Michael Perez, category two. Javi Baez advances to second on throwing error by Michael Perez. So you could have both a boner and an error or multiple boners and an error on a play. But maybe, you know, you say we need more words and uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we need more stats. Maybe we need the boner. I have so many things to say, and I will I will say one of them first, <laughs> and it is, would we have this be a sponsored moment? Would HIMS sponsor both? Oh, man, that could be a gold mine in baseball. <laughs> so would call up Roman. I'm not going to read HIMS ad copy on here. One of the great <laughs> things about us not having ads on the podcast is, is some of the indignities that, well, you have yes. to do pods with ads, and like everybody's got to pay their bills, so I'm not knocking that, but um, I... <laughs> have been spared the indignity of some really bad ad reads. So I will mm-hmm. not read the uh, hymns copy, but I would just like to point out to whoever their um, advertising agency is that they need to chill because <laughs> I believe that adults get to consume entertainment and media without always having to think of the children. Like sometimes it's fine for stuff to be for grownups, but your ad copy is out of control. I will leave it to our <laughs> listeners to look it up. It is indecent and offensive. <laughs> So that is the first thing I will say. And the second is, I like this idea very much, but I also hate it. And I'm going to do that thing that's irritating where I read an old tweet of mine. But I'm going to read this tweet. The worst moment in baseball history was Merkel's boner because my mom knows it happened. So every time we go to a game and there's some base running drama, she points and asks, is that a boner? (laughs) It's true. This is the real thing that my mother does. So please stop introducing opportunities for more boners. Think of my mother. Yes, that was officially a boner according to the official score. (laughs) It's in the box score and everything. I am not to be trusted with things that would entertain middle schoolers. So anyway, that's delightful, but please know, because baseball Twitter can't be trusted with that. We can't (laughs) even do the puns without embarrassing ourselves. Imagine if there were more boners. (laughs) (laughs) Do we need to put like a warning on this episode? (laughs) I'm so sorry. Technically, Uh, this is not explicit, probably, but it kind of is. It's not more explicit than him's ads, which I I did not I mean, expect you to go all haze code on the. the I'm sorry, but like episode, it's a lot. But... Again, I'm not going to read it on air, but it's a lot. <laughs> I at least appreciate that when the Roman ads come on, you get to like contemplate the strange relationship that has no doubt taken place between <laughs> Zach and his hippie doctor dad. Yes, um, you're like, oh, you you must have been very candid with one another, and then you <laughs> and then you get a him's commercial, and you're like. Am I going to prison for having seen that? I don't know. So anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I've had that thought, actually. If my dad were a doctor, would I 
bring that up <laughs> if the situation arose yeah. or, or did not arise, so to speak. No, I probably would not. I imagine you would say, hey, dad, do you have a good <laughs> referral you could give me to a blood Someone doctor? Someone who's not you. Blood, a urologist? I don't know yeah. about doctors for, for man problems, but I don't know. All the advertising suggests to me that it's not getting better for you guys, and I'm really sorry. Anyway... Ben, I don't understand NFTs. <laughs> oh, no, me neither. It's my very um, smooth transition away from boners <laughs> to other things that men like. I don't know. <laughs> Man, we haven't had one of these in a while, and they're always so much fun. Uh, I know you have other things to talk about. Can we briefly talk about how silly I find it that there's going to be uh, an NFT of <laughs> sure. Lou Gehrig's luckiest man speech. Yeah. There's going to be an NFT of that. So first of all, look, I, there are a lot of things that people enjoy that I don't understand, and that's fine. Like everything in the world doesn't have to be for me. I'm perfectly content to have people enjoy what they enjoy, except that NFTs make me feel old. So that part I resent. And also, like, isn't that public domain by now? What I'm referring to is that Major League Baseball is going to, in the words of Jeff Passan, as reported on Tuesday, significantly expand its non-fungible tokens offering this fall, partnering with a new company that plans to eschew the highlight-driven NFTs popularized by NBA Top Shot and instead focus on other collectible digital elements those involved with the project told ESPN. This also includes like the opportunity to do meet and greets. And then what is the non-fungible token? Your memories? <laughs> meet and greets with, with whom? With ball players. Like mm, okay. uh, you'd have a chance to maybe meet your mean. For example, take the White Sox, your mean Mercedes hitting a home run on a 47 mile per hour 3-0 pitch from Minnesota Twins, Williams Estadio, among the most viral moments of the young baseball season. I, I again say we need a new term for viral. There could be... A still photograph NFT and an artist rendering, plus the highlight, and maybe an NFT that offers an offers an opportunity to interact with Mercedes, Astadio, or both. There could be. <laughs> so I know that these are all. There be? I know yeah. that these are all distinct things, right? Like a still photograph, an artist rendering, a highlight, and so I suppose that those are technically non fungible. But isn't it? But isn't it kind of cheating to have several versions of the same highlight? Anyway, we don't have to talk about NFTs, and I know that we're going to get explanations in the email. And uh, if you, if this gets you going, okay, I guess. But I, I don't understand it no <laughs> from an appeal perspective <laughs> and i understand the appeal of collectibles like i i made sure to get the left-handed and right-handed uh catel marte bobblehead from the diamondbacks this year like i i'm not a collectibles hater i just don't understand this especially with garrick's speech because it's like uh it's not like that's the clip of that's going away Right. No, that's the issue with NFTs, in addition to the fact that the PR messages that I receive about these things, which happen too frequently for my liking, are always just inscrutable and oh, impenetrable. Yeah. But I have made an effort. Like There was a, a point where I said, all right, I should probably figure out exactly what this is trying to tell me. And I've read various explainers and oh, yeah. listened to various interviews, and I, I kind of get the sense. I, I grok it to an extent 
but none of my deeper understanding has shed any light on the appeal of this beyond its value to some small minority of people as a speculation, as as a market, right. which, uh, as I understand it, is already kind of collapsing in some quarters. So it yes. seems very much like sort of a scam, like a, a money-making opportunity. And yes, I'm fine with collectibles too. You could say that maybe a, a physical collectible is maybe more pleasurable than something that is uh, digital like this, but there's a lot of value in digital things too. It's just that it's not actually creating scarcity. It's sort of an artificial scarcity. In right. that, as you said, like, yeah, you can get an NFT of that moment, but anyone else can also watch that moment and experience it in pretty much the same way, just without the artificial value that gets attached to it. So it is sort of meaningless to me and to many people who are not just kind of trying to capitalize on the gold rush while the, the getting is good. And so MLB has tried to get into this too, inspired by the NBA Top Shot right. effort, which again, I understand that the prices are already tanking pretty quickly there, but Tops launched an official MLB equivalent of that pretty recently too. So in addition to all of that, as I understand it, which I don't understand it very well, but as I understand it, it's also destroying the environment yeah. <laughs> terribly too. So, yeah, that part, so that, there's that, you know, on yeah. top of uh, it seemingly having very little value to society, it is also actively destroying society. So <laughs> I'm ready for NFT craze to subside. Like I, I know there are certain applications of NFT technology that are like worthwhile and, and useful, but they're not this sort of thing. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm ready to stop hearing about this sometime soon. Yeah. Well, we can stop talking about it now, but that one seemed particularly strange to me because yeah. again, I would imagine that a lot of people who have never really engaged with baseball in any kind of real way, like know that speech, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. So that part strikes me as odd. Yeah. The, the NFT press releases are wild. <laughs> I was like, I worked in finance for a while and I have no idea what you mean by some of this stuff. Yeah. So, anyway. I read a, a study somewhere that was like, the more you mention the word like blockchain, it's like yeah. the more people tune out. And I, I have found that to be true. We sell case. millions of MLB jerseys a year. Why shouldn't a jersey come with an NFT? Because, but why should it though? Like <laughs> they answer that question first, please. Yeah. Anyhow, I yeah. just wanted to transition us away from boners. Yes. So I feel <laughs> well, like I've, I've succeeded. You took us to something even worse, potentially. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Not that boners are, are bad in all cases. I'm just saying <laughs> when Will Craig makes them. Anyway, oh, happy, no. happy inaugural Lou Gehrig Day so while we're at it. <laughs> I have so many jokes and I, none of them are well, they're all good, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna not. Okay. What else do you want to talk about? What is baseball even? <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to mention is that there was an article over the long weekend by Bob Nightingale in USA Today. And this one was about Theo Epstein, and it was Nightingale talking to Theo Epstein about the changes that he is thinking about making to the game and all the thinking that he's been doing about that, relevant to a lot of our recent discussions, especially with Craig Goldstein last week. And this article, it's tough to say how solid it is, but it, it seems to break some news that uh, MLB is on the verge of, of making some real changes along the lines of what we've discussed. The article says 
MLB plans to seriously crack down on the rash of pitchers using illegal substances in the next two weeks, with umpires ordered to be vigilant in stopping pitchers from using foreign substances to dramatically improve their spin rate, even if it means embarrassing some of the biggest pitching stars in the game. Makes it sound like some sort of sting operation. MLB's just been biding its time, gathering intel, and now it's ready for a raid. We've heard this before. It's kind of turned out to be a false alarm, but... Now there is apparently a a timeline on this if this report is credible, so we could be seeing more of that soon, more of the Giovanni Gallegos situation, but much more widespread than that was. It also says that there's movement toward catchers wearing electronic devices on their wristbands to signal pitches instead of the traditional way that is vulnerable to sign stealing, which I'm in favor of. Then it also says... Beginning in 2022, teams will have a maximum of 13 pitchers on their roster. It could potentially be reduced to 12 pitchers, even 11 in ensuing years. So again, I I don't know if this is set in stone or, or what. The article makes it sound as if it is. So that is very much what we were talking to Craig about last week. So it sounds like that's coming. Sounds like robo-umps are probably coming too, pitch clock, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of changes that we have ruminated about at length. But really, I I will link to the article just for people to check out the Epstein quotes. Because when I read what Epstein has to say about this, it does give me confidence. And I'm trying not to be too much of a a mark here, because uh, until we see it, I probably shouldn't believe it. But I was pretty optimistic after the Epstein hiring was announced. And everything he says, maybe because he agrees with me on most things seemingly. So I'm inclined to say, yeah, he's got it right. But it really sounds to me like he understands the issues involved. And whether that means that the fixes will happen sometime soon and they'll be perfect and everything will be wonderful, I don't know. But it is nice to have someone who is working with MLB in some capacity who is at least getting the messaging surrounding this stuff, right? Like, I feel like the protagonist of Rutherford Falls, the new Mike Schur show, who goes around like deciding this guy gets it, that guy doesn't get it. But when I read Theo Epstein's quotes, I feel like this guy gets it. And I'll just read some of the things that he says in this article, but... A, he's good at, I think, kind of trying to diffuse some of the inevitable blowback that comes along with this conversation, because whenever MLB talks about changing something, even though it changes things a a lot less often than other leagues do, people get their dander up about it. And so the way he goes about it, he says, I think there's a misconception that MLB has an interest in trying to completely change the game and reinvent the wheel. And that's not the case. We just want to nudge the game back into a better balance. The game is constantly changing, and I think for the last 10 years it's been moving in a direction that nobody would choose on their own if they were starting from scratch. I don't think anyone would sit down and say, hey, we really want to have a 25%, 30% strikeout rate. It's just recognizing that the game's changing a little bit. It's important for everyone who cares about the game just to have a discussion that can be thoughtful and intentional about steering in the direction that's good for everybody, particularly the fans. So if the game's going to be evolving, how can we put up some guideposts to make sure it changes in a way that's the best possible version of baseball, action-packed, and the most entertaining version of the game for fans and players alike? And it's hard to hate that, I think. Even if you're a traditionalist, which is sort of a strange thing to say because a lot of these changes are designed to make the game more traditional in a way, even if it's changing the rules, it's kind of flashing back to earlier eras of baseball. But he's not coming out and saying 
baseball sucks. <laughs> you know, this is unwatchable. We need to do something. Baseball is dying. It's over. So that's good. I think that he's he's not really downplaying the product in a, a way that would turn people off. And he's also not saying, we're going to shake up everything. We're going to reinvent the the game. He's just saying, hey, we're just talking here. We're just thinking about this. We're just having a discussion. And who could quibble with that, really? So I I think he is taking the right tack here. He, He has adopted the right tone, whether that means he will actually win hearts and minds of people who are resistant to these things. I don't know. But I'm just saying he's not like going to great lengths to put people off. You know, maybe the suggestions that he's making will put people off. But I think the way that he is framing them is the best way to frame them. And when the subject of the strikeout rate comes up, as we were talking about on a recent episode, Instead of blaming the hitters and saying, you know, players are bad now or hitters don't know what they're doing, he pinpoints the actual problem as we see it, which is, he says, I think it's a lot of factors coming together at once, changing the way certain elements of pitching and hitting are prioritized and therefore taught. Pitching has evolved from more of an art to more of the science of bat missing. A lot of people in the industry have done a great job of weaponizing data and technology to train for the traits that allow you to miss bats and strike a lot of people out. So pitchers are able to train for velocity and to optimize the spin on their breaking pitches. You can almost rename pitching to bat missing. And then on the offensive side, he says, the pitching has created a different environment for hitters. So their last resort is to hit a ball hard in the air and pop it out of the ballpark. Hitters in the draft now are being selected based on the ability to hit the ball hard in the air. Launch angle and exit velocity are being prioritized in team's development. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle where the pitching is so good, the defensive positioning is so good, that hitters prioritize the home run and not two-strike approaches or using the whole field. So again, I think that's great that he is not saying that nothing has changed, but he's not saying... It's the hitter's fault. It's the pitcher's fault. It's the team's fault. Like he's not pinning the blame on anyone. It's just these larger forces and incentives that are shaping player behavior and have produced the sport that we're watching now, which is kind of what we've been getting at. So again, I think that's good probably for persuading people that he's not going to make anyone defensive and say hitters are screwing up, hitters suck. He's saying hitters are responding to the conditions that they find themselves in in a rational way. So we just have to change those conditions. So again, nothing has actually happened yet. (laughs) So it's probably premature to celebrate this too much. But it just makes me reassured, I think, that he is involved in these discussions and that he seems to be looking at it the way that I would perceive to be the right way. Right. I think that it is always good to be worried your remark. <laughs> Not you specifically, like all of us. I don't think that you're um, like uniquely vulnerable to naivete. I don't mean to suggest that at all. But, you know, you want to realize that Lucy's going to pull the football away before you start kicking, right? Yeah. So I think that that's a good posture to take just because there are so many, even if we don't want to read something sort of nefarious into it, there are just a lot of different competing interests whenever we ask these questions and try to answer them as we discussed with Craig. And so making sure that the right things are being prioritized, and of course, what is the right thing to prioritize is going to vary person to person, but is a good, you know, we want to ask questions and be critical of it to ensure that, you know, it's the competitive interests of the game rather than, you know, corporate stuff, because that matters to someone, but it doesn't have to matter to us really, like beyond Mm -hmm. baseball being on TV. And so, yeah, I think that I think it's okay to be 
excited about this perspective, even as we maintain a close eye on how the process plays out, because as we've talked about a bunch of times in a lot of different contexts on this podcast, the only way that you're really going to solve problems is if you properly diagnose them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so having this perspective on it, I think is really valuable because then you're going to entertain solutions that speak to those problems rather than solutions that speak to something else. So Mm -hmm. I think it's fine to be optimistic, even as we maintain a healthy dose of skepticism, because that's just always what's called for uh, these days. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that that's fine. I'm just so glad we weren't talking about boners anymore. (laughs) (laughs) If I bring it up one more time, though, you're going to doubt my sincerity on that point. So I'm going to not bring it up any more time. (laughs) He also brings up moving the mound back, which of course endears him to me as an advocate of that, or at least experimenting with that. And again, when it comes to that, He is trying to make it sound less threatening than it could. He said, I understand that the 60 feet, six inches has been around for over a century, but here's one way to look at it. Isn't it worth running an experiment for half a season in the Atlantic League to find if that might be the answer? (laughs) Yeah. That pitching is so good right now that we've outgrown 60 feet, six inches by a foot. And if it is and can be done safely, maybe we don't have to change six other things, which is something that really appeals to me about it, is that that could be kind of a cure-all or maybe not a cure-all, but maybe An elegant solution, though. Yeah, one or two things instead of seven things. And he said, I think it's important that we find that out. If it doesn't work, then you can move on and no one will ever talk about moving the mound back again. But I think it's important to find out. Again, he is just like... Like going way out of his way just to to tiptoe around this and say, hey, we're just we're just talking here. It's just us. We're just rapping about this. Why not see if it works? And uh, it's harder, I think, to really get angry about that, you know, as opposed to someone coming in and saying this must be changed now and, and being militant about it. So, I, I, you know, he's had a lot of experience running organizations and talking to the press and everything. So it's not a surprise that he seems pretty adept about this, but it's still nice to see because not everyone at MLB is. <laughs> and uh, one last thing is that the shift comes up, I guess Nightingale asked him about that. And he's not anti-banning the shift or tweaking the shift in some way necessarily, but it's pretty clear that it's not his top priority. Yeah. He says, if I were to pick one thing that we have to focus on to create the best version the game can be is putting the ball in play more because by definition, it will give players more chances to show their athleticism and helps the game move quicker. And I'm with him on that. And he says, I hear voices out there saying, well, just have better hitters or tell the hitters to use the whole field. I don't think that's enough to ask organizations or players to prioritize a way of playing that might be more familiar. I think it's important to find ways to adjust the rules a little bit to create incentives that reward those behaviors. So, you know, it's under consideration, but I think his first priority is let's get more contact and then we can figure out how to improve that contact too if we need to do that also. Anyway, good signs, I think. Lab leak, lab leak, lab leak. Still think Lab League is a good idea, too. Do you think that if we sold hats with test tubes on them for Lab League that people would buy them? I don't know well, if they would. There's a Fangraph store, so mm. you could test it. Oh, Just boy. test it the way that we're testing moving the mound back. Make a prototype. Lab League hats, Lab League for hats. <laughs> <laughs> 
couple other quick things. I do have a couple emails I'd like to get to, but just wanted to mention that in May, which is now over, there were 127 pitchers who threw at least 20 innings. And the lowest ERA in May belonged to Kevin Gossman, who's been great for the Giants, 0.73 ERA. But second lowest and lowest in the American League, Rich Hill, 0.78 ERA in May. And that is one reason why the Rays have won 16 out of 17 games, which is good. It's also that they hit pretty well, too, which is uh, kind of surprising, both given their history and when you look at their surface stats, which are not very impressive before you era adjust and park adjust. But yeah, the Rays are are really good. It turns out surprising not many people, but Rich Hill, perhaps surprising some people. He's still pretty good, too. The old guy still got it. He does. He, I mean, again, we will remind everyone to not get overly fussed about tiny, minute bits of war accumulation. Although, you know, getting into June, it starts getting more defensible. But he's basically accrued as much uh, war in in 57 innings as uh, he did all of last year, albeit only in 38.2 last year. So Mm -hmm. Rich Hill striking out, striking out more guys, Mm -hmm. walking fewer guys. Right? Yeah, look at that. I can yep. do I can do math and look at rates and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, good for good for Rich Hill, you know? You know, it's funny, but well, he's uh he's pitched more innings than he did last yes. season, but we're also at the point in this year where we're basically like as deep into the season as we ever got <laughs> last right. year. Teams have played just about 60 games, almost 60 games at this point. And that is how long the regular season was last year, if you recall. So yeah, yeah, imagine the season ending like this week. And that's what we had last year. Last year sort of sucked for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I wouldn't repeat it. He's mm-hmm. throwing his curveball a little less often, throwing <laughs> his cutter a little bit more. But, you know, I don't know that he's anything but just Rich Hill, but good yep. for Rich Hill. 41. Yep. Goodness. That's all I want him to be, just Rich Hill. Just be, good enough just for me. be. <laughs> Uh, are we really going to let a Dick Mountain reference go by given the rest <laughs> of this? In this episode of all episodes? <laughs> <laughs> nope. The answer is uh, no, we will not. The other thing is uh, we got a response to our discussion last time we answered an email about whether it would work for MLB to use sticky stuff, foreign substances. Oh, I shouldn't even say sticky stuff on this episode oh, either. Oh, no, Ben. <laughs> foreign substances oh, as uh, sort agree. of a a way to equalize competitive balance. So instead of using draft order, you would say, hey, terrible team, you get to keep using foreign substances, which in this scenario we have outlawed for other teams. And Eric, our Patreon supporter, wrote in to say, in response to the idea about allowing certain teams to employ pitchers using a foreign substance, I'm reminded that this was in fact the case 101 years ago, sort of. During the winter meetings of 1919 to 1920, owners agreed to partially ban spitballs. They were each allowed to designate up to two spitballers in their rotations who would have license to use their not-so-foreign substances. No other pitchers were permitted except the chosen two on each team. Then after the Ray Chapman tragedy in 1920, the spitball was outright banned, sort of. The 17 remaining active pitchers with licenses to drool were grandfathered in and allowed to continue their trade until retirement with no newcomers permitted to take up spitballing. The last surviving phlegm thrower was Burley Grimes, who retired in 1935. And that reminded me of a great edition of Craig Wright's wonderful newsletter, Pages from Baseball's Past, which I always plug on this podcast. You can find it and subscribe at baseballspast.com. But a few years ago, Craig wrote 
about the grandfathering in of the spitballers and how that affected their performance and performance across the league. And I will link to this, but I will just read a bit from it because it's interesting and relevant because imagine if that's what they were to do now. I don't think that is what they will do now, but if this supposed crackdown in the next two weeks on fired substances comes to pass, like imagine MLB said, hey, whatever you're using now, you get to keep using, but we won't let anyone else start using it again. Don't think they will do that. Don't think they should do that or that there's any reason to do that. But if you said, you know, hey, these guys have learned to pitch in a certain way with these foreign substances and it would be unfair to take it away from them now. So we will let them just play out their careers and and we'll ban it for everyone who's entering the league or you'll only be able to designate certain pitchers. The the guys who are really loading up, they can keep doing it and, and everyone else can't do it. So just imagine if that were to happen, because as Eric notes, there is precedent for that. So Craig Wright wrote, on February 9th, 1920, the Joint Rules Committee banned all foreign substances or other alterations to the ball to accommodate major league pitchers who were already established as spitballers. A list was created of 17 pitchers who would be allowed to throw the spitball for one more year to help smooth their transition to being conventional pitchers. The new rule greatly affected the pennant races and the World Series. The Brooklyn Dodgers had two of the eight grandfathered spitballers in the National League. One was their top pitcher, Burley Grimes, who in 1920 was third in the league in both the area and wins. They also had spitballer Clarence Mitchell, who was 5-2 and two in a spot starter role. The Dodgers won the pennant and then lost the World Series to Cleveland, who had the most innings thrown by grandfathered spitballers. Stan Kovaleski and Slim Caldwell combined for over 550 innings and won 44 games for Cleveland with their wet ones. Kovaleski was especially dominating as he was second in the league in ERA and led in both strikeouts and fewest hits allowed per inning. So that is almost the scenario we were talking about where certain guys or certain teams get to do this and they get the advantage. And I don't know whether a spitball gives you more or less of an advantage relative to non-spitballers than someone who is using advanced foreign substances that are not produced by one's own body. But uh, perhaps we could test that. Someone should get in a a lab and, and lather up with spit and see how that compares. But if you assume that it's comparable, then that's why it worked. And so... Craig went on to note the five teams that did not have a legal spitballer had a combined winning percentage of 433 and included the two last place teams, the Athletics and the Phillies. But despite the competitive inequities manifested in the transition year, it was decided in December of 1920 to extend the exemption for the 17 registered spitballers to a lifetime exemption. And this really helped those pitchers and lengthened their careers and improved their performance. And Craig says, it proved to be a tremendous boon to several of the spitballers. Bill Doak had been a sub-500 pitcher before going on the list and afterward had his only 21 season and was 82-68 and 68 as a grandfathered spitballer. Urban Shocker had never been a 20-game winner until he became one of the handful of legal spitballers. He then had four straight 20-win seasons and ended up having the best winning percentage of any exempt spitballer. Jack Quinn was 36 years old going into 1920 and had fewer than 100 career wins. As a grandfathered spitballer, he seemed to pitch forever. He threw his last major league pitch at age 49 and retired with 247 wins. In the first six years of the spitball ban, half of the 12 ERA titles were won by the exempt spitballers. Over the first seven years of the ban, the top three pitchers and win shares in the American League were three of the legal spitballers, Urban Shocker, Stan Kovaleski, and Reb Faber. 
over in the National League, Burley Grimes was fifth in win shares and went on to win the most games among the grandfathered spitballers. So all these guys, like, or a lot of them, seemingly got a lot better when they were allowed to cheat in a way that no one else was. And he also points out that Grimes, Kovaleski, and Faber all had Hall of Fame careers with most of their success coming after they were exempt from the ban of the spitball. To put their advantage into perspective, there were 68 pitchers who pitched enough to qualify for the 1919 ERA titles. That winter, 14 of them were put on the list of pitchers who would be allowed to continue throwing the spitball. Three of those 14, that's 21%, became Hall of Famers. Among the other 54 ERA qualifiers in 1919, only four went on to the Hall of Fame, that's 7%, which suggests that being a grandfathered spitballer increased by about threefold the chances of having a Hall of Fame career. So, you know, I don't know if uh, the groups that were chosen to be grandfathered in or not, whether they were different in performance pre-ban, whether like certain prominent pitchers were more likely to get the grandfather status or not, which maybe could skew things, but... All in all, it certainly seems as if, yeah, having guys who can put stuff on the ball that is not allowed for everyone else, that would make a pretty big difference. So that's a a historical precedent to consider as MLB maybe does something similar or at least makes more of an effort to eradicate another type of foreign substance. How would you allocate? (laughs) Let's say they were like every team gets two. How would you allocate your two? What would the Mm. criteria be that you would use? I mean, I think that you'd, I'm probably overcomplicating this in some respects. I think the case for who benefits the most is probably one that's fairly easy for teams to suss out. But do you, like you could be so sneaky and nefarious, like you could decide that you will not let your young guys who have to go through arbitration be among the two because yeah, then right. you depress their results. I mm-hmm. think it's probably better to just not t- trust teams with that. Isn't <laughs> isn't there some, I mean, there's not an explicit version of this in the enforcement as they're envisioning it, but the idea, at least in the beginning of the season, this I suppose could change, but was that, you know, they were going to look in part for year-to-year variation in spin. Mm -hmm. And so they were going to be not officially grandfathering, but sort of effectively grandfathering some guys in. Now how that brushes up against the testing component, you know, I think there's opportunity for the rubber to meet the road there. But there was some idea that like, unless you're showing a huge season-to-season spike, that you might pass, you know, not undetected, but, you know, be subject to a lower amount of scrutiny than some guy who has like a big year to year shift, right? Yeah, no, you're probably right that they would just decide based on economic issues and who they would have to pay less because of this or not pay more. But you could certainly figure out which guys would benefit most from being able to spin it, like who's most dependent on that, who gets the biggest boost to their spin rate from using stuff, whose arsenal is most dependent on that spin and movement. You know, with some guys, it might not make that much of a difference. With other guys, it might be a make or break thing. So analytically, you probably could figure yeah. it out. And and then, yeah, you just have to say, sorry, we ran some tests and it turns out we're picking this guy and <laughs> not you. And I wonder also whether any teams would decide not to to do this, to take some moral stance or something, because uh, Craig also notes that the Athletics, Phillies, Pirates, Cubs, and Senators did not register a spitballer 
Pirates owner Barney Dreyfus was so opposed to the spitball that he refused to register Pittsburgh spitballer Hal Carlson. Carlson's career ERA prior to the ban was 14 points better than the league ERA. Forced to pitch without his spitball in the first five years of the ban, Carlson's ERA was 77 points worse than the league ERA. He eventually adapted to being a conventional pitcher and posted better than average ERAs after that. But there was clearly an adjustment period for him, and he didn't get to keep using his spitball because his owner said, no, spitballs are bad, <laughs> which uh, is probably a point in his favor. But yeah, it, it hurt his player in that case and I guess hurt his team too. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Owners with moral stands. Curious. Yeah, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) And I also wanted to mention, to absolutely no one's surprise, I wrote a piece about Shohei Otani that was uh, published on Tuesday. I will link to it, though if you are a regular (laughs) listener of this podcast, you've probably heard me make some of the points I make in there. (laughs) I was going to ask, when I saw it go up on the ringer, I was like, should I read this or should I just ask Ben to tell me the stuff he hasn't told me about Otani already when we podcast later? (laughs) Yeah, I, I definitely covered some ground that would be familiar to podcast listeners, but One thing I found out as I was working on this, I I wanted to try to capture Otani's appeal. And one way I tried to do that was by asking people who run certain websites and and sites with player pages to tell me where Otani's player page ranks in terms of visitors this season. So MLB.com, Shohei Otani has by far the most visited player page this season since opening day. He has more visits to his player page than anyone, and the second-place player, who is Mike Trout, has uh, way fewer hits. Otani has 57% more views of his page than Trout, and I also asked Sean Dolinar of Fangraphs, and at Fangraphs, it is even more lopsided. Otani is far and away the number one guy, even if you just count his hitter page. If you lump his hitter and pitcher page views together, he's like almost double Trout. So it's like Trout and any other one player or any other three players combined do not have the traffic that Otani alone has. So it's not just me is what I'm saying, although I probably have been responsible for like a good number of those Fangrass <laughs> page visits. I don't know how many exactly. Should have asked, like, Sean, check this IP. See how many times my IP has visited <laughs> the Otani player page. Although I guess I've used multiple computers. <laughs> but yeah, it that is one reflection, you know, one little piece of data that I did not have just to, to show that he is kind of capturing people's imagination. So it's it's not just me. He's, he's really like a sensation. So that's why I wanted to write about him because I say these things on the podcast, but I had not actually had anything down on the page since spring training and there's been a lot of Otani action since then so you can go check that out it's about the stats and everything but it's also about the experience of watching him and rooting for him and also whether we will actually see a successor another two-way player come along which is far from assured at this point still like the longer he succeeds at this level I think the more likely it is that he will inspire copycats and that those players will get a chance to to test their mettle but There was like a wave of articles from 2017 to 2019 about how there was like a new generation of two-way players and it was Otani and it was Hunter Green and it's Brendan McKay and it's, you know, Jared Walsh and Jake Cronenworth and Caleb Cowart and Christian Bethencourt and all of these guys. And 
really, Otani is almost the only one still standing. I mean, I guess McKay is kind of still a two-way player, although he's recovering from an injury, so he hasn't been pitching. But there just aren't a lot of guys. Like, either their careers have stagnated or they've specialized. They've picked a lane, like yeah. Hunter Green and Cronenworth and Walsh, who have had a lot of success as, as hitters. But it's far from assured. I, I was talking to Eric Longenhagen about this, and there are four players in MLB.com's top 60 draft prospects list who are like plausibly two-way players still at this point. So that's encouraging that there is some hope on the horizon and that those guys might not be forced to specialize. Bubba Chandler, Carson Williams, yeah. Spencer Schwellenbach, and Braden Montgomery all have chances. And there are three guys this year in the minors who are kind of doing the two-way thing and and have played multiple games as a pitcher and as a DH or at another non-pitcher fielding position. Sean Reynolds with the Marlins, Tanner Dodson with the Rays, and Lucas Erseg with the Brewers. But, you know, none of them is a top prospect or or at all assured of actually making it to the majors and making it as a two-way player. So that's kind of why I, I prize Otani so much is that, like, there isn't a backup plan necessarily right. if this goes wrong. Like, we really might not see another attempt like this ever or for a century or something. We might know the answer to this, and I just don't remember when the roster limits were going to be put in place, and then they were obviously scrubbed, and now it sounds like they're going to come back in some form. How did two-way players count against a mm. team's pitcher limit? I don't remember if there was a definitive answer to that question. I know that there yeah. was some concern around around Otani and how his injury-plagued year was going to yeah. factor there into that. There was like an Otani exemption. Right. It was like kind of written to allow Otani For... to be a designated two-way player, sort right. of. But yeah, did that actually happen? It, it was, uh, I'm reading from MLB.com now, Every player on a team's active roster will have to be designated as a pitcher or a position player. The designation must stay the same for the entire season. And starting in 2020, the number of pitchers a club can carry on the active roster will be capped, which didn't happen because of the pandemic. Right. This is from 2019. Only players designated as pitchers will be allowed to pitch in a game, including in the postseason with three exceptions. The game goes into extra innings. A team is winning or losing by six or more runs. The player has earned a two-way designation. Right. And the way to get that designation was if you pitched at least 20 major league innings and play at least 20 major league games as a position player or designated hitter with at least three plate appearances in each game. And then once a player has earned the two-way player designation, he maintains that status for the rest of the season and the following season. And while he has that status, his team no longer has to use one of its pitching roster spots on him. So basically a two-way player is a position player who's allowed to pitch with no restrictions. And then it said, how does this affect Otani? And that's what you were asking about. So Otani is the only true two-way player at the major league level. He's also the only player who would qualify for two-way status if the rule went into effect this year as opposed to next. But Otani won't be pitching at all this season as he recovers from Tommy John surgery. So he'll have to re-earn his two-way player designation in 2020 when the new rule is implemented. The Angels should be able to designate Otani as a pitcher for 2020. There's no restriction on players who've been designated pitchers as far as letting them bat. It's only players carrying a position player designation who cannot also pitch. So once he reached the 20 innings pitched and 20 batting games threshold, he'd immediately qualify for a two-way player under the rule for the rest of 2020 and all of 2021. 
And at that point, the Angels would potentially gain an extra pitcher spot on their roster. But none of that ended up happening. I right. Guess, none right? of that ended yeah. up happening. And and I would imagine that, you know, I don't have to tell you, like, Otanis are very rare. <laughs> and yeah. some of that is is a development thing, but it isn't all that. Like, it's just very hard to be very good at both sides of the game. And so I doubt that there will be too, too many guys who are suddenly looked at as more viable two-way options than they might have otherwise been as a result of roster construction limitations. But, you know, if it gets down to like 11, I I wouldn't be surprised if it's entertained at least for longer for guys than it would be were the roster rules to remain more flexible in terms of how, in terms of how you, you know, sort of designate your pitchers and your hitters. So it'll be interesting to see if that matters. Although I don't imagine it will. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Maybe we can just run through a couple of these because they're related to things that we have discussed. One, Kyle, our Patreon supporter, says, Over the last year or two, I have heard Wander Franco described as a generational talent. I've also heard other young players like Vlad Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., a lot of juniors, etc., etc., referred to as such. This leads to two questions I have for you. What is the length of a baseball generation? How far back of a debut would still be considered the same generation as Wander Franco? And two, how many generational players can you have in a given generation? While all of the above mentioned players are obviously extremely good, should they all be considered a generational talent? And I was thinking about this myself because I was reading this MLB.com piece that was collecting all of the praise for Otani. And there were people in there calling Otani a generational player. And I think that's pretty inarguable. He's like a a multi-generational player. But then there was also this quote from Mariners manager Scott Service. There's a lot of kind of generational type players running around the game right now. And we've just never seen anything like it before. It's very, very unique. And that sounds sort of paradoxical that there could be a lot of generational players in the game at the same time (laughs) who are just like by definition part of the same generation so i was trying to square that in my mind and we may have discussed this on the podcast at at some point maybe when we were making fun of scott boris for calling all of his clients generational players (laughs) but i wonder like in some sense i i think it it's okay for service to say that because the way i think about it is that you can kind of have different tiers of generationalness like Otani's totally generational but then you can have players who are maybe generational for a franchise which is like maybe what we mean when we say that sometimes so like you know Juan Soto can be generational for the Nationals or something although maybe not because like Bryce Harper was just a few years ago but maybe that's not a great example but you know you could have players who are great for a certain team that has not had a player of that caliber for a generation. So they could be generational for that team, even though there is someone who's part of the same generation on another team who is generational for that team. So I think you could say that, but probably we're overusing the term a little bit. It loses something if, if you have many players running around who are generational players at the same time. But, you know, people are reaching for ways to describe just how many fun, young, exciting players there are in baseball right now, which is a good problem to have. It's not a problem at all. It's only a problem in terms of terminology. And what do we really mean by it? You know, like, do we just mean the best guy? Do we mean 
a generation defining player, right? That seems, that strikes me as something that might be a more broadly applicable term, right? That you could have this crop of young, exciting players who all kind of came up within a few years of one another and they are marking and sort of shaping this generation's understanding of the game in a way that, you know, is a little bit different than before. Very, very yeah. unique. You know, I try not to be <laughs> pedantic. I mean, I'm paid to be pedantic because I'm an editor, but very unique. They're yeah. Not that one. I I do remain kind of a fuss budget about anyway. Yes. Because there it's either unique or it's not. If it's it can't be very unique. No, nope, I'm with you on that one. Can't. Sorry, Scott. Anyway. But you're right that, you know, each franchise has generational players for their own franchise, which then really potentially dilutes the term depending on how good the yeah. franchise is. <laughs> True. Your definition for generational might be, you know significantly less impressive depending on the team that you're rooting for it is probably an overused term but mm -hmm. i don't know what else we would say what else would we say ben how else could we use it i think of generations as being like what 15 years long 10 15 years long 20 years long how old are millennials <laughs> 40 to yeah almost 40 to 25 20 yeah mid 20s probably so like 15 years you know mm -hmm. um so probably like that, because mm -hmm. we all agree about how generations are defined and never fight about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I think we know what people mean by that. What they, what I take that as meaning is a guy who you could credibly see being not necessarily inducted into the Hall of Fame, but in a Hall of Fame conversation. Like, that's what that means to me. Like, a guy mm -hmm. where when his name comes up on the ballot, you don't worry about him going one and done, and you expect there to be some real conversation about him. And some of that conversation for a guy like, you know, like Trout is going to be like, well, yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame. And that's mm -hmm. the end of the conversation. It's going to be the most boring profile that Jay Jaffe ever writes because there will be so little controversy, but so much accomplishment. So in that respect, it's different. Mm -hmm. I think that what we mean are like guys where when their candidacy comes up, we consider it seriously and don't find it to be laughable in some way. Yeah, I think everyone kind of gets the gist. And I think also a baseball generation can be a little bit different from a human generation. So I think it's okay to use a shorter term. There's actually a study I remember reading about that, how long is a baseball generation, which I can't find right now. But if I find it after the episode, I will provide an update at the end. There's just a lot of turnover in MLB. So arguably generations come and go and rise and decline quickly. But yeah. still, maybe we should try to find other terms at times so that we don't water it down too much. But yeah, anyway... I think our millennial estimate was roughly right, although Wikipedia's page for generation says that it's generally considered to be about 20 to 30 years. Oh, so, really? I don't know. It's a little longer than I would think. Wow. I mean, I don't know. But yeah, millennials are like 81 to 96, I think, okay. technically. So. 15 years. Has geriatric millennial made its way into the... <laughs> I hope not. Sometimes I think that people just want to be mean. <laughs> yeah. And this is a, a question that relates to something that Theo also touched on. This is from Doug, Patreon supporter, who says, how much of defensive positioning should be attributed to a player's skill or is where a player stands before a pitch completely determined by the coaching and front office staff? And 
that is a, a thorny question and uh, a pretty impossible question to answer from afar and with war or defensive run saved or whatever. Clearly, there is a team component and clearly there is a player component. And the exact weighting there varies by player and team. And not just whether the team gives the player that information, but then whether the player actually absorbs and applies that information. So it's really hard to know. And that's why no one really makes an effort to try to divide up the credit there. There are team positioning, defensive run saved metrics, and you you can either attribute it all to the player you can attribute it all to the team or i guess you could kind of arbitrarily come up with some split but really it it just varies so widely by organization and by player that i don't know if i can make any blanket statement like yeah clearly i i guess the team component is increasing over time whereas before it was you know the player's personal study or instincts or or whatever that was making the difference and it still does make a difference but it's probably leveled the playing field in that that information is available to all players and they can use it or, or not and certain teams may emphasize it more so you know with some teams and players it may be like almost like amateur baseball or something where the coaches teams call the pitches yeah you know you can't attribute any of that to the catcher or the pitcher necessarily whereas with other teams it it may be largely the players and and certain players still don't really like to get that information or use that information and maybe they don't even need it in some cases so yeah that's that's a tough one (laughs) well and it and it can change for a guy over the course of his career right like you know i think that as players age and maybe they're less you know like a pitcher is less able to rely on stuff alone right that they have to be more receptive to information beyond that to help refine and sort of mature their their repertoire so i think it it can it can depend for a given player even uh, over the span of a couple of years. So it's really hard to untangle. I think you're right. It's quite it's quite tricky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you still have to execute, though, which I yes. think is always part of the hang up with attribution. You know, it's a big part of it. It's like even armed with the right information, you then have to go do. And that is not something that is a given, right? The ability to actually go do what you've been told is sort of the most optimal way to approach a given bat or your positioning in the field or whatever, you still have to mm-hmm. be able to go and do it. Yeah. So that makes it thorny too. Yeah. And this is why I wanted to bring this up now because Theo Epstein said that he kind of wants to put more of positioning into players' hands or at least have less of a, a heavy-handed in-game role for teams and, and front offices, essentially. So He said, analytics obviously have their place in the game, but it'd be great if they're used more for pregame preparation and not as much in-game. We want to improve the pace of play, but what slows the pace down is the synthesis of a ton of information that's in the game now. If you can limit the analytical stuff to pregame and let the players use their instincts and their intelligence to position themselves, it would lead to a faster pace of play. It puts a premium on players' instincts and intelligence. We have players who are more athletic now than we've had in the history of the game. But it would be great if we could find more opportunities for them to show their athleticism. Fans don't want to see players look robotic. 
The players are smart. They understand the way the game is played better than anyone else. So let them position themselves a little bit. Let's put the game back in the players' hands. They can use their instincts, use their intelligence, and put their athleticism on display more for fans to get that entertainment value. And I find myself pretty sympathetic to this perspective. And I remember on a long ago episode having a a slight dispute with Sam. I think it was inspired by that controversy between, I think it was the Mets and the Dodgers because the Dodgers were supposedly using like laser rangefinders or something to like mark on the field where their fielders should stand. And I was saying that something in me kind of revolted at that idea. And I think Sam kind of took the opposite position, but I didn't really like the idea that the Dodgers were essentially just like marking a point on the field and and then the players would just walk out there and stand there like it's smart. You know, I'm sure they do a good job of it and all, but something about kind of taking that responsibility and that skill entirely out of players' hands like that, like just marking where they should stand with a, a little, I don't know, golf marker or something. Like it, it just seems too simple. Like there should be a role for players either positioning themselves or at least following the instructions themselves without having it so explicitly pointed out to them. And I hadn't really considered this as a, a pace of play problem, although I, I suppose Epstein is probably right about that but I think I just I like it better because when players first started using cards you know positioning cards whether they were outfielders who would pull out a card to see where to stand or now catchers will have those wristbands that will tell them you know what pitch to call or sometimes even pitchers will have cards and at first I thought oh this is cool it's new and novel they're using information I'm in favor of information you know this is good it's a competitive advantage all of that but now that it's become commonplace I don't get the same sort of minor thrill out of seeing something new and novel and I do kind of think like well shouldn't they be off book for this <laughs> you know it's like if you're watching a play or something and the actors are just reading the scripts like it's the same lines ultimately but it does take something away from it I mean it 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 takes your suspension of disbelief out a little bit it removes you from that experience which you know you don't have that same suspension of disbelief in baseball but also just the fact that they kind of have like the answer keys and they're pulling them out during the test (laughs) you know it's like well maybe they should have to memorize that right or you know and and i think that's good because it does put a little bit more of the the skill and the performance back in the hands of the players like even if it's just memorizing this information before the game they still have to keep it in their heads and and deploy it effectively during the game which is a skill you know so i think i'm actually in favor of that i don't know if it's easy to eradicate that but you probably could you probably could just have umpires come out and say no you can't look at that card which has actually happened I forget who it was it was uh, a Phillies pitcher and I think it was Joe West came out and, and told him that he couldn't use the card that he had even though he was allowed to to use it but you know I don't know am I am I preaching to the choir here or do you not care about this or you fine with it <sighs> It was Austin Davis, by the way. Joe West came out and and confiscated Mm. his card. (laughs) I don't, I'm not bothered by the cards. I don't find the explanation that it would improve pace of play to be particularly persuasive. It just doesn't, like, positioning guys on the field doesn't take 
very much time no. and like it happens it's not as if they stop game action to do that they do it well you know it's not unusual to see the bench coach like standing in the dugout being like move over there and he's doing you know big arms he's got mm-hmm. big arms to be like you gotta move over there <laughs> and he does it while the game's like the game action is in progress it doesn't yeah. stop the game to do that so i don't find the argument that it would like improved pace of play to be particularly persuasive setting that aside like i guess that i think it would be fine to limit the in-game instruction but i also don't care (laughs) (laughs) and like you know we still have base coaches so what about fielding is different no yeah no that's a good question (laughs) and mound visits and all that so yeah right so we have other opportunities in the course of play for the coaching staff to provide an assist and so i'm not saying that there isn't a difference i just would need to think about why we would treat this particular aspect of it differently perhaps it's not the same quite the same as a mound visit because there you do have to stop the game to go out there and talk yes. to the guy and then the ump comes out and is like you're taking too long and then you're like yeah fine and, and you I'd go be back fine with banning that too <laughs> i think i've i've actually advocated in the past like instead of limiting mound visits just, just do away with them, them you know other than like injury visits or whatever because really like you should be able to plan for the hitters you're going to face before the inning starts and if it's mechanics or something well i mean again that is a skill right being able to self-diagnose and self-correct and you can always come back to the dugout and and get that pointer after the inning. So I actually would be totally fine with doing away with that also. But but you're right, it is ben, consistent with that. Mine. <laughs> right, it's but it's like it's consistent with base coaching, right? I would I would say that it's more of a piece with that than it is with a mound visit where you do have a disruption in the game's action. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that means we need to make room for it, but I also, because it has been so common and such a part of the fabric of the game for so long, even if the fielding positioning part of it is more obvious than it used to be, or certainly, again, you see the guy doing big arms, it just doesn't bother me. That doesn't mean that I can't get bothered about it. I mean, (laughs) if we know anything about me, it's that I have the you know i'm susceptible to getting riled up but yeah i'll just wear you down and keep bringing it up until you are bothered by it the way that you're bothered by the zombie runner (laughs) i don't find it to be a problem i like when they pull their little card out and they're looking at it i like it when i like it when a reliever pulls the little card out and it's not a good reliever and it's a really good hitter it's like you have a you have a a not good reliever i'm not gonna pick on a new one let's call him Mm -hmm. bob and bob's out there and he's facing mike trout and he pulls the little card out of his cap and you're like does it just say yeah he's good (laughs) what is it on the card you know um i like it when fielders are distracted by other stuff and then the the bench coach has to do really big arms to get his attention (laughs) i like it when an outfielder is is looking at his card to figure out exactly what the outfield alignment's gonna be and he looks really unimpressed with whatever's on the card (laughs) like he's like this stupid math i don't like it so i i think that i've talked myself into liking it a lot and thinking that we can't possibly let this beautiful part of the game go because where would we be without it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'd be fine with doing away with the base coaches too. <laughs> I think we've had an email about that. I say get rid of all the coaches. Players fend for themselves. But still, having like uniformed personnel on the field who are there for that kind of in- in-game intervention 
maybe it feels a little different than just like the card that's printed out by the intern in the front office or something like I guess the distinction between coaching staff and front office is you know pretty much broken down at this point anyway so really what's the difference what the source of that information is but I don't know it just it seems like you're breaking the fourth wall or something (laughs) it's just like breaking the game to say here's preparation that maybe you should have done before the actual game was going on like we're watching you do you're studying right now like this should have been done off screen is kind of how I feel about it I yeah I just really am not bothered by it and I like that a lot of it takes place without a break in the action you Mm -hmm. know and somehow they managed to not yell they do big arms they'd managed to not yell it's like (laughs) I've been watching you know playoff basketball and first of all NBA coaches and I get it like hopefully everybody's vaccinated but like they're the worst about their mask so they just pull them down so that they can yell and I'm like we've been doing this for too long for you all to still be doing that but there's a lot of yelling because you know it's loud in there and you gotta you gotta yell but there's a lot less yelling in in baseball probably because you don't want to be like here is our strategy (laughs) right that i would imagine that that's part of it huh i'm gonna try to get worked up about this for you i don't think i'm gonna succeed but i'm gonna try i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna think about it the rest of today and tomorrow and be like can i find a way to find this objectionable so that ben and i can share this although again you know us having different views on something for once is maybe not the worst thing for the podcast good good to disagree (laughs) sometimes yeah it's not that i disagree so much as that i don't care Mm mm-hmm That's fine too. All right. The last thing, just want to get this quick stat blast in because I have updated numbers here. Okay, as you may have noticed, times have been tough for the Baltimore Orioles lately. (laughs) As we record on Tuesday afternoon, the Orioles have lost 14 straight games. It's the longest losing streak since the 2013 Astros, I believe, lost 15 straight. Funny how when you hire ex-Astros people to rebuild another team, (laughs) they kind of do it in a similar way. And that team tanks and is terrible for a while before hopefully getting good. But one of the few bright spots on this roster is Trey Mancini, who is both a good story and a good player. And so we got a question. This was last Thursday. We got this question from Robbie in Potomac, Maryland, who says... As I have been watching the Orioles this year, I have noticed that Trey Mancini is good, while the rest of the offense is mostly not. There are some good guys there, but it's true. In seeking some way to quantify this, I saw that Mancini has 42 RBI and 30 runs, and the Orioles as a whole have scored 191 runs as of the morning of May 27th. Thus, Mancini has contributed to, quote-unquote, 72 out of 191, or 37.7% of the Orioles' runs this season. Yes, the home runs are double-counted, but I think that's fair, as he is both the run producer and scorer. Is this a lot? As a Washington Wizards fan, I often hear similar numbers stated with regard to Russell Westbrook's points and assists, but I haven't really heard any questions of this flavor regarding baseball. 37.7% seems pretty high, but where does it rank all-time? 
So yes, of course, people could quibble with the metrics we are using here. And yes, RBI and runs and its old school box score statistics. But I think it's kind of fun in this case because we're talking about was the player directly involved with scoring a run? Either he drove it in or he scored it himself. And so I think this is worth looking into. And the numbers have changed a little bit. So the percentage has fallen a little bit now. The Orioles are through 54 games, and Trey Mancini has scored 30 runs and driven in 42. That is 35.6% of the Orioles' 202 runs. So that is uh, regressing to the mean slightly because since the email, the Orioles have played five games and scored nine runs, and Mancini only played in three of those and didn't score any runs and didn't drive in any either. But I still got a breakdown here from our newly appointed frequent stat blast consultant, Ryan Nelson, who says this seemed like it would be pretty straightforward, but I ended up digging deeper and deeper into it and found some fun stuff. So Ryan is calling it a contribution rate, and he notes that the player with the highest contribution rate in a full season is 1972 Nate Colbert for the San Diego Padres. Colbert had a good but not exceptional season that year. He had 87 runs and 118 RBI. His 198 combined runs and RBI was 40.57 of San Diego's total of 488 runs, which was fourth worst in the league. The Padres had a 79 WRC plus as a team that year. Colbert had a 139. It still blows my mind that Nate Colbert is the Padres franchise leader in career home runs, <laughs> by the way. I guess like Tatis or Machado or someone will probably pass him a few years from now. At least yeah. the Padres hope that will be the case. But still, the fact that that has stood for so long and that he doesn't really have that many home runs for someone who's leading a franchise. I mean, he's only got 163 with the Padres. It's just not a big number. So that always surprises me. But that is one way you could do it. Second place, Ryan writes, is a little different. That belongs to one of the all-time great offensive seasons, 2001 Sammy Sosa. Sosa led the league in runs 146 and RBI 160 that year, but famously did not lead the league in homers despite hitting 64. His combined 306 was 39.38 of the Cubs' 777 runs. So you could have a pretty good hitter on a terrible offensive team. You could have a great hitter on a pretty good offensive team. And Ryan writes, there are two more seasons with a better contribution rate than Trey Mancini's 37.31 as of last Thursday. 1935 Wally Berger for the Boston Braves, which was 38.17%, and 2011 Matt Kemp for the Dodgers. 1963 Hank Aaron is fifth. In 2020, Jose Ramirez is sixth, although that was obviously in a shortened season. So Mancini, when this email came in, was on pace to be fifth place all time. But there's a long way to go. And now that his contribution rate has fallen somewhat, he is only on pace, so to speak, not obviously technically on pace for 18th place all time. So that is what his current rate would give him. And Ryan really went above and beyond and also provided the leader through any number of games of the season. So if you want to keep tabs on Mancini and the sat as the season goes on, you can do that. So Mancini is through 54 games. And as noted, his contribution rate is below 36% now. The all-time leader through 54 games is Willie Mays in 1964, who had a 43.6 rate at that point. 
So that was uh, pretty high. And Ryan wraps up some interesting small sample size observations. The 1968 Dodgers only scored one run in their first four games, and that run came off of a Ron Fairley solo shot. His one run and one RBI gave him a 200% contribution rate through four games. In 2018, Joe Panic pulled off the same feat. 200% through four games, but his came as the Giants won both of their first two games, one nothing off the back of two solo homers by Panic. The Giants then lost 5 nothing and 9 nothing in the next two games. 1958, Boston Red Sox player Jackie Jensen had the longest season start of 100% or higher when he started the season 5 for 18 with four homers in the Sox first five games. His four runs and eight RBI was 133% of the nine team runs. And none of the four players to best Mancini's uh, rate as of last week is a Hall of Famer, but the next 11 highest are by 10 Hall of Famers and Jose Ramirez. So Hmm. just rounding out the, the top 10, as Ryan mentioned, it goes Nate Colbert, 72, Sammy Sosa, 2001, Wally Berger, 35, Matt Kemp, 2011, Hank Aaron in 63, Jose Ramirez last year, and then Chuck Klein in the Baker Bowl in 1933, Ted Williams in 1942, Dale Murphy in 1985, and Babe Ruth in 1921. And I will, of course, link to the spreadsheet with the data as usual. Kind of a fun list to look down. So probably not a list that you want to be on yeah. in the sense that your team is probably bad. But on the other hand, you are having a good season at least. So that's something. Right. But I guess you you probably, as a fan, don't want one of these seasons. I don't know what the collective team winning percentage of, of the top guys is. But if you're concentrating that many of your runs in the hands of one bat, it better be a really all-time great bat or else it's not a good sign as it is not for the Orioles and Mancini. Yeah. I mean, it would be some comfort, I suppose, to know that you are having your own individual good season. But I think that in general, yeah, you would want to be having an individual good season amidst a variety of other Sterling seasons so that you might uh, continue that season into October. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all I got. You have anything more to say about boners before we go? I really do not. <laughs> well, you might, but it sounds like you're restraining yourself. I, I just think. <laughs> no, I think you have the right idea. We, we probably covered that topic. I have another joke. <laughs> Share it. No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I love our listeners, and many of them are bright, funny people, and some of them would just tweet weird, out-of-context stuff at me, and I think I will, I think that there's enough grist for the mill, put it yes. that way. <laughs> okay, we'll save some for next time, perhaps. Uh, yeah. I mean, but if if they last more than four hours, then you want to <laughs> And on that note. Good on dunch. Well, the Orioles snapped their streak. They beat the Twins. And Trey Mancini had another good day. But he produced only three of the Orioles' combined 14 runs in RBI. It was a 7-4 victory. So his contribution rate dipped again. But that was good news for Baltimore. A couple posts to direct you to. I was thinking about this as we were having our conversation about generational players. But I couldn't quite find this study in time. I was able to dig it up after we finished speaking. A couple years ago, April 2019, Tom Tango did a post at his site 
TangoTiger.com where he tried to quantify how many years are in a sports generation and then how often you get a generational player. And he did it via Twitter polls. So he basically asked his own followers, do you consider this player generational? He actually did it in hockey. And he found that based on the line where his followers started to say, no, not generational, there were about 10 to 15 generational players over a 40-year time period. So by that measure, by what Tom's followers actually consider a generational player to be, you get a generational player every three to four years on average. So you can either redefine what you consider to be a generational player, or you can redefine what you consider to be a generation in sports, which maybe makes sense in a way. If you figure that the average life expectancy of a player's pro sports career is a lot shorter than an average lifespan, then maybe it's okay to have a sports generation be a lot shorter than a generation generally is. Players come and go more quickly than people come and go. He actually did the same series of polls with baseball players instead of hockey players, and he got even more generational players. He got to something like 26 players over a 52-year time period, which would mean that a generational player in baseball comes along every two years. He said, in baseball, I think you'd be hard-pressed to set the number of generational players in the 52-year time period at under 13, so every four years, we have a generational baseball player. If you think of humans with an average lifespan of 80 years, a generation is about 25% of that, or 20 years. For an athlete, they can go close to 20 years for a full career. So saying four or five years to denote a generation seems reasonable enough. So that's another way to make what Scott Service said make some sort of sense. And the players could be clustered. So maybe you don't get a new one every four years. You happen to get a couple of them in the same year, and then you don't get another one for a while. So still sort of overused, I think. But Tango's redefinition makes some sense. And then secondly, just wanted to point you to a Fangraphs post by Ben Clemens published on Tuesday called What's Eating Francisco Lindor? We talked about this last week. Why is Lindor slumping? Why isn't he hitting better? And we were kind of perplexed. We noted that he's doing a lot of things sort of the same, but he's not getting the same results. And we weren't doing the deepest of dives. It was a bit of banter. So I feel sort of vindicated that Ben kind of came up empty too. He identified various minor factors that are probably suppressing Lindor's stats, but he concluded, I'll level with you. I can't figure out why this is all happening at once. Maybe the answer is that Lindor is just a little off his game and a little unlucky at the same time. He's just not hitting the ball as well as he normally does, period. He hasn't slumped when it comes to strikeouts and walks. His swinging strike rate is roughly unchanged, and he's making his customary high amount of contact while walking at a career-high rate. We mentioned a lot of that, and Ben goes into much deeper detail, and there are some ways in which Lindor is clearly producing or not producing differently from before. Then the question becomes, well, why is that happening? Is it a mechanical issue? And that's another level of analysis that one could do and some have done. But if you heard our discussion about that and were left wondering, so wait, why is Lindor not hitting? And you wanted more information? I refer you to Ben's post, which may still leave you kind of confused. Ben writes, for the most part, Lindor has done what he always does, put a ton of balls in play without overwhelming power and gotten the short end of the stick. This isn't a dramatic change in his game, but rather the ugly downside of a volume-based offensive approach combined with a small but real slump in contact quality. That small consolation for a ravaged New York roster, but it bodes well for the rest of the season and the rest of his 10-year contract to boot. Lastly, on a recent episode, 1694, Meg and I discussed the bogus numbers about all-star game revenue that have been bandied about and how people shouldn't believe that MLB moving the all-star game from Georgia to Denver cost Cobb County or local business 
businesses are both $100 million or more? Well, on Monday, MLB and the MLB Players Association and MLBPA Executive Director Tony Clark were sued by a conservative small business advocacy organization called Job Creators Network, which demanded the immediate return of the game to Georgia and $100 million in damages to local and state small businesses, plus $1 billion in punitive damages. The president and CEO of this network said that MLB robbed the small businesses of Atlanta, many of them minority owned, of $100 million. We want the game back where it belongs, etc., etc. I saw some news outlets just repeat the pretty baseless claims about enormous windfalls coming from All-Star Games. Others provided the proper context and counters to those claims. And this lawsuit sounds like an extreme long shot for multiple reasons. I enjoyed the quote about this in an NBC News story from Nova Southeastern University law professor Robert Jarvis, who teaches a course on legal issues in baseball and co-wrote the textbook Baseball and the Law, Cases and Materials. He said, this is the dumbest complaint I have ever read. If this was turned in as a law school exam, you would have given it an F and counseled the student to find a different line of work. Mr. Jarvis is not mincing words there. Anyway, maybe this will be dismissed before it actually reaches court, but it would be kind of amusing if MLB did actually have to defend itself here, because it would probably be forced to discredit those revenue numbers. So I don't know whether to root for this thing to get tossed or for it to go far enough that MLB actually has to go on the record saying that actually there isn't that much of a revenue boost. Either way, I suppose there would be positives to take away. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Timothy Plachinski, Jared Hirsch, Dylan Heinzen, Paul, and David Byerman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. And in honor of the inaugural Lou Gehrig Day this week, I will play you out with a song that was recorded and sent to us by longtime listener David Newberry. It is called The Luckiest Man on the Face of the Earth, and it is off his 2020 album, As Far Away As You Can Go Without Coming Back. You can find that at davidnewberry.bandcamp.com. Take it away, David. I will take it as it comes.